Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, uh, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we are talking about what happens to a financial plan once you're gone. Uh, And this is really going to be a conversation about what happens to the next generation and your financial plan uh, after you, uh, really for the surviving spouse. Uh, And this episode is exciting for a couple of reasons. One, because it was a listener question. And not only was it a great listener question, they gave us a bunch of supplemental questions. So we're just going to be reading straight from their questions and kind of going back and forth on that. And the other reason this is an exciting podcast for our YouTube viewers, you will notice the barren wall behind me. I was just about to comment on that. I am moving uh, next week. My wife and I bought a house, and so we're super excited about it. So our apologies for the barren wall, but it's just, you know, say goodbye. Because next, beginning next, uh, next time we record the podcast, it'll be a different backdrop. So I'm excited to show you what that looks like. We are recording this in, uh, let's see, November of 22. So all of our listeners are probably hearing that thinking, oh my goodness, he bought a house right now. What in the world was that like? So we may need to do an update later on on your experience being a home buyer right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, you and I have both have tons of thoughts on that. But yeah, you know, it's Cliff Notes version. It's it's got to be, you got to have a really high conviction about what you're doing, right? Regardless of the timing and interest rates. And so I got, not going to lie, it stings a little bit having a 7% interest rate, but it was the right move for, for us and our family. Okay. But with all that said, uh, let's get back to the question from our listener, which is, Hey, what, what happens when I'm gone? So I love that phrasing because we need to unpack what that means. Um, and we'll talk about some estate planning documents as well as some logistical things, but when I'm gone doesn't necessarily mean dying, right? So um, this is, and this is one of the big things that we run into is we'll ask clients, have you done your estate plan? And they'll say, yes, here's my will. A will is not an estate plan. A will is a piece of an estate plan, but really you there's more ancillary documents. And we're about to talk about one of those, which is a, a power of attorney. So basically who has the ability to make decisions in the event that I become incapacitated, uh, still living, but incapacitated. So there's really two dimensions of what happens when I'm gone. What happens when I'm gone, but I'm still living, but don't have the mental capacity to make decisions. And then what actually happens after after I pass away? Um, So Justin, you want to talk about uh, what happens in both of those scenarios? Yes, certainly. And, you know, I think we can tackle the bigger one first. So after you pass away, what happens to your family? There are, gosh, there's some legal things to go through there, uh, having the right estate planning documents, having beneficiaries updated. um, And then there's some organizational aspects to that. And then I think there's also some educational aspects. Um, So just briefly, You want to make sure that whatever you want, so if you think about your balance sheet, you think about all of your assets, and then you ask the question, where do I want this to go? Pretty critical question because you need to make sure that both estate planning documents and beneficiaries are true to what you're wanting to happen. You know, many times we'll we'll see either beneficiaries listed or a will or an estate plan that doesn't necessarily account for changes in life. 
And so kind of the, the most simple example that really um, uh, focuses on the negative uh, consequences of not having things ready. If you have kids from multiple marriages, you need to really make sure things are buttoned up. Uh, because the way that the protocol for really any state, and we're you know we're doing this here in Texas, the the protocol for the way an estate plan is going to be distributed is spouse is going to get you know priority over everything, and then after that it all goes to the bloodline. bloodline. So if you have children and you are now married to someone else, well those children are going to be disinherited if you do not clearly definitively spell this out. Uh, within estate plan documents and within beneficiaries. Uh, Everything would go to spouse, and then everything is going to spouse's children, not your children. Um, So that's the first key thing to understand. Jared, anything you would add before we kind of go on to that other point of of you're still living, but you're not in a mental capacity to be able to handle your finances? No, I would just say, right, so like this is why the documents are so important. So what happens when you're incapacitated is the documents decide, right? The documents spell out. But and if you don't have documents that spell that out, the court decides. So we encourage everybody to get documents in place because then you have then the decision is yours uh, versus having to go through the court process of figuring out who can make those decisions so you can make them more prudently. But Justin, what were you going to say? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. I want to I want to kind of piggyback on that, the court can decide if you are mentally incapacitated. But, you know, let's really play out this scenario. So so how would this how would this go down? Well, first and foremost, this is going to be a really difficult scenario for your family. Um, so if you're married, your surviving spouse is going to be dealing with a, a truly difficult situation. And having to go to the courts to obtain a, a power of attorney and, and medical directives, all these things, that is going to be a really tall task. So that's kind of another reason why you want to have these documents ahead of time. And I mean, you know, this topic is a very personal one for me. Uh, We've talked about this before, but I, about four and a half years ago, coming on five years, I had cancer. Um, And so my wife and I were urgently scraping together our estate plan, trying to get things settled. And you know, we were doing this kind of at the beginning of this diagnosis and during treatment, and it was incredibly difficult. And so I would, I, I cannot be more emphatic when I say this, you you really need to get this done now before the storm comes. It was extraordinarily difficult to do these things while we were in the middle of, as you can imagine, uh, the hardest time of our lives. And so I think it is really important to make sure you have these boxes checked today uh, because it is going to be an enormous burden on your spouse if they are having to do this while you're already incapacitated. Yeah. And this is where I think an advisor can really be helpful because like part of it is, okay, what do the documents say? But then there's the actually logistical work to get accounts reflecting so that the person who can legally make decisions is in a position where they can manage accounts and move money and everything like that. So having the documents is helpful and it's a requirement, but it's not enough. Um, and one of the things that that I would say I've seen in my work in this is not necessarily a lack of estate planning, but a lack of like organization related to the estate plan. So they've done everything, but they haven't had a conversation with beneficiaries. They don't know who gets what, when, or where these documents are even held. And then the question of, okay, there's these 
What assets do I even need to be looking for? How many different bank accounts do they have? How are the bank accounts titled? How do I get, you know, there's just a million little things to where, you know, you can have an estate plan that says what happens to it. But if getting a, a balance sheet to figure out where, what even the universe of things that you're dealing with is, if that's not something that's easily accessible, it's going to turn into a scavenger hunt. So having that information is helpful, but really you need to build like an organization and a plan and have all of that in a consolidated place to where uh, the surviving spouse can easily go and, and a network of people will say that they can easily go to and say, okay, hey, this has happened. What do we do? Well put. You know, this is kind of off the wall, uh, Jared. I'm going to bring it up on this point, though. I think it's a huge case for consolidation of accounts and assets into one, two, at most three different investment firms. What do you think about that? Simpler is better, right? Simplicity trumps complexity, uh, and it's not worth having un- unnecessary, uh, unnecessary, you know, relationship management. So I'm big on consolidating it. Uh, if there's a really clear reason as to why, I mean, it's a really personal decision. But I think, I think less is more, right? Like a lot of times, we'll have clients come over and they'll have more accounts than they need, and it's just more things that could potentially be, you know, titled inconsistently relative to the estate plan. So we're big fans of consolidation and simplification. So I would really, you know, I, I agree with you. I think trying to simplify and consolidate where you can makes things easier uh, for the future generation. Yeah. And, you know, a quick note on this, and in no way am I intending to, you know, throw stones at, at random firms when I say this, but a lot of our listeners have accounts at computer share. A lot of our listeners are ExxonMobil or Chevron, and they have to deal with computer share either through RSUs or during the NUA transfer process. And I cannot tell you enough, if you have account an account owner and maybe it's your spouse and then your spouse is incapacitated and it's at a difficult custodian, simply doing a transfer of assets that, you know, most institutions can do a transfer of assets in days. It's electronic signature, really simple, and it's it's streamlined. Simply doing a simple transaction like that at a place like computer share is, I mean, you're, it's, you're climbing a mountain to get it done. So imagine how difficult it's going to be when the account owner has an account there, they're incapacitated. Well, computer share is not going to, they're not going to talk to you about that. And the same holds true. If you've got a 401k at Vanguard, Fidelity, and Voya, every one of those 401ks is going to have totally different requirements and processes for how you access or do anything with that account. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be flagged once they hear the words that, you know, this person is mentally incapacitated. And so cannot say this enough. It is so much easier to simplify your balance sheet, get accounts organized, consolidated, and have the right legal documents before any of these things happen. And have the titling, right? The accounts titled correctly so that they can execute based on these said things. So that's, you know, when you're gone, what's going to happen? Well, it depends on what's spelled out in your documents or what the court decide if you haven't spelled it out. But the thing, I think the good call to action of, okay, what can I do is like, okay, you can consolidate, you can organize, and then you can share that, right? Ideally, you have a password manager that spouse can access or have an essentialized balance sheet and, and, and being willing to uh, share that with certain members of the family or beginning to have conversations about where everything is, right? Because even if you have everything, if the family needs to have a scavenger hunt to figure out where everything is, uh, it's going to make it a lot more burdensome than it needs to be. 
Can I give a quick example there on Password Manager? Do it. Uh, so we use LastPass and really simple application. LastPass.com, I believe, is the full website name. But we have an account at LastPass and we have a master password that you know is able to log into our accounts. And by the way, we physically have a piece of paper that has that password on it. And so you think about you think about data security and organization. I mean, your passwords are way more likely to be stolen online somewhere rather than, you know, if it's in a uh, drawer in your desk. And so so much safer to have a master password to something like LastPass physically in your house, have both spouses know where that is. I would also have, you know, if you have if you have kids and grandkids, I would have a key child potentially who would be the trustee of your estate. Um, after you're gone, I would have them know where that is. And so I, if you've met with us before, you've probably heard me use this analogy. I grew up in Kansas. Kansas was tornado alley, right? And so we always had a plan as a family. If a tornado comes, if our roof is blown off, and I mean, a, a tornado just destroys our neighborhood and we can't find each other, we had a place in the cul-de-sac that we were all going to meet. It, it, it was our disaster recovery plan. You need to think about your estate plan, your accounts, your organization in the same way. Uh, if you're married, your spouse should know. Whether or not you're married, you should also have uh, potentially, if you have kids, have a child that knows where things are located so that everything can uh, be obtained with a little bit more simplicity. Uh, you use the term scavenger hunt. You want to avoid the scavenger hunt ultimately. Yeah, that's exactly right. But so part of it is you getting your ducks in order. And then part of it, I think, is working with a team that's going to help make things easier. So this next piece of the question is, what should the relationship be between the financial advisor and the surviving spouse? What would you say there, Justin? I think it's important that, gosh, it's it's really an interesting question too, because there are people that, there are families where one spouse has no interest at all in the finances and has no interest in meeting with the advisor or the team of advisors. If that is your scenario, I would at least have them come to meetings once every two years or so, at least. My ideal scenario is both spouses come to every meeting. You know, I think that's that's obviously the ideal. But if you're in a situation where one spouse just really doesn't want to be a part of this, at the bare minimum, have them come every so often. So there is some familiarity with the advisory team, but most importantly, make sure there's some familiarity with what are the assets, where are they located, what are they supposed to be invested in? Jared, should we talk about some worst case scenarios here? Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. So, you know, I think what you're trying to avoid here is you just, you don't want to have something happen to you. And then you've got a well-rounded financial plan. You've got a diversified portfolio implemented in the right way across multiple tax registrations. You've got a sound income plan. Your tax return is being done and reviewed every year. It coordinates with your estate plan. It's also considering your insurance documents. You don't want to have a very well-oiled financial plan, a, a proper financial plan that's being executed. And then your spouse has no idea what's going on. And then you know, at some point, like they can absolutely fall prey to the commercials for annuities that you hear. I mean, I'm up here in, in North Texas, we've got 101.1. It's this classical music station. It just plays incredible classical music. And every so often I'll have it on when I'm in the car. And, um, 
every every single commercial break they use, there is a 30 or 60 second commercial for an annuity company. And they just make the most absurd claims. And they're basically just selling a very expensive annuity that is not in the best interest of the vast, vast majority of people. I can tell you right now, I can't think of one client we currently have where it would be in their best interest to do that. And so what you don't want to have is an incredible family balance sheet, a plan, a multi-generational wealth plan, and it's being implemented properly, but your spouse has not paid attention at all. And then, well, after you're gone, there's inevitably going to be a market crash every five years. And those are scary. And if they don't, if they don't know the plan and if they don't have some buy-in, some conviction on the plan, well, it's really easy to listen to the dozens of commercials for bad financial products that prey on fear and take advantage of seniors that do not have high financial acumen. And so you want to avoid that happening. Yeah. And, you know, having an advisor in your corner, the the relationship, right? Like Justin said, it should be pre-existing, right? Like we, we want to work with both spouses and we realize there's usually one that kind of runs point and manages the financial day to day. We want to have an existing pre-existing relationship with them, but really we're, our goal is to execute right on the things that they want. So they're going to need a baseline amount of education of understanding what's going on because we won't have the power to move money to, uh, you know, dis- make, make certain decisions about distributions or uh, some of, a lot of that will be spelled out in the estate planning documents. All we can do is help execute those operationally. So the, the surviving spouse, you know, We'll work hand in hand with them. There's a baseline amount of competence and understanding about the plan and where the documents are that needs to be had. Yes. And, you know, this this happened. I heard this from another advisor that I'm close to. But along that point with, you know, annuities and financial products that are not in your best interest, it, obviously we talk about it's critical to work with a fee-only advisor, someone who cannot earn commissions or kickbacks. But this other advisor I'm connected to, there was a scenario where, you know, they were managing assets for a family, and I, I think it was it was near ten million dollars. Uh, and one spouse passed away, and the other spouse started, you know, getting all of those sales pitches from insurance and annuity companies. And I think their portfolio was something to the tune of like an eighty percent stock, twenty percent bond. And so, you know, all of these other insurance salesmen were just saying eighty percent stock for an eighty-two-year-old widow. Well, that that's horrible. That's that's way too risky. Well, they have ten million dollars, so twenty percent bonds is over two million dollars in bonds. I mean, there was almost you, you. There was enough lifetime income to to never even touch the stock portfolio. And the vast majority of these assets was going to pass down to multiple children. And so, it absolutely is the right call in that scenario. Um, so again, there has to be a baseline level of education, even if there's no interest and even if one spouse handles everything, there does need to be a baseline level of uh, education, conviction as to what the financial plan is going to look like long term, how assets are going to be invested, how they're going to pass down to the next generation, because there are a lot of you know, financial salespeople that are going to want to take advantage of that situation. Yeah. And the next question that we have on here is kind of connected to that. So what kind of control should the financial advisor have over day-to-day cash flow? So we'll say all of this 
is contingent upon what's spelled out in estate planning documents, right? So that that governs, right? Like, so if you have a trust and there's rules about what what types of distributions can be made from the trust, that's that spells it out clear as day. So one of the our jobs with the surviving spouse is to you know recreate the paycheck in retirement to the to the uh, ability to the best of our ability and ensuring that it's in line with the estate plan. Um, but so our job will be to get cash to the surviving spouse in the most tax efficient manner that's consistent with their financial plan. But day-to-day cash flow bank accounts and advisors should never have access to any of those things because that's custody. So the surviving spouse will be responsible for paying expenses day-to-day, managing the cash flow, personal balance sheet, you know, checking, savings, all of those things. The where the advisor fits in is making sure that uh that the the cash the the cash accounts are being replenished on the appropriate interval and in concert with whatever is spelled out in uh the documents because a lot of times trusts will have uh verbiage that require certain principal and income distributions and so making sure that that's satisfied but also that uh you know living expenses are satisfied oh such a good topic and kind of another area of education that's necessary if one spouse pays every bill now uh, the surviving spouse should, you know, every couple of years just have an idea as to, okay, how does this happen? How is this set up? And if I'm in charge of it someday, what do I need to know? Uh, Jared, to your point, yeah, I really don't think an advisory team, a, I don't, I don't think a, an investment firm should have any access or control over day-to-day finances. I think there should be kind of a review mechanism. So take our e-money client portal, Right. Um, we, and you know, we would pay out like a monthly distribution for our retired clients and we're able to monitor budgeting activities so we can run expense reports, see how much are you spending over a four, six, eight, 12 month time period, but we have zero access to the bank accounts. Uh, and I think, I think that is pretty critical that that is the relationship. And we like it that way. So there, there are instances with families with ultra high net worth, uh, where you have 20 million plus, where you have a team kind of managing bill pay, uh, and the day-to-day expenses there. But, uh, for all intents and purposes with our clients, we, yeah, we don't have bank account access. We, we like it that way. And, but, but we will work with, uh, with the surviving spouse. So Justin, what would you say, like, this is a good question because it's really open open-ended. What's your experience in this role? So, you know, you and I have both been in the profession a decent amount of time and seen this. Uh, what, what, what have we learned about this and what advice do we have to part impart to our listeners based on personal experience? Yeah, it's a really difficult deal and I've seen it play out many times. And, you know, I think the question asked even in your prior firms. So the firm I came from, I, you know, saw this a lot, uh, had about 300 client families I worked with of that 399% were retirees. And so a chunk of them were over 80 years old. And unfortunately you see, uh, you see clients pass away and you see this process play out when it's done. Well, here's some things that I notice when it's done. Well, the estate plan has already been set up and the estate plan is updated. It's not 30 years old. It's not 20 years old. So things are up to date. Uh, the estate, the legal documents are current Two, the family knows where to find legal documents. Um, so that when things go well, you, you see that, and this is one that may surprise you. Well, it's not going to be surprising, but it's a little bit more specific and helpful for our listeners. 
I think when I've seen it go well, there is an active child in the equation. So there is a helpful, honest, active child that is helping the surviving spouse get things together. Uh, things go better when that is 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 true. And that's it's just so much more beneficial too when that happens, you know, for the eventual when when both spouses pass away. Uh, that's that's very helpful on that front to already have one child that's has gone through this and they've helped the surviving spouse. They understand the process and stuff. Some traits of when it does not go well. So obviously the opposite of that is true. Is there not any estate plan documents? Um, I mean, worst case scenario by far is, yeah, their beneficiaries or estate planning documents are either not there or they're at odds with each other. Beneficiaries are basically going to function like a contract. Whatever's on your beneficiary, that's, that's where the money's going. And so critical to be mindful of that. I mean, the absolute worst, worst scenario is what we mentioned earlier, where you haven't delineated uh, if you have children from multiple marriages. Uh, very, very common to have children disinherited in that that respect. Now, the other thing that I would say is, you know, I alluded to this earlier. This is a big one. It is a disaster. It is a massive can of worms. If the surviving spouse or the children have to sort through six different accounts at four different institutions, I cannot explain just how hard it is. And it inevitably ends up being a a part-time job for a good six months for whichever person in the family is, is running point. And actually, my goodness, Jared, I'm surprised we haven't even mentioned this yet. Total worst case scenario is your assets are unclaimed. Uh, Meb Faber talks about this a lot, but how many assets right now uh, across the U.S. are just totally unclaimed? Isn't it like in the trillions? Yeah, there's a website where you could see if you have any unclaimed property. We'll link to it in the show notes. I can't remember the dollar amount, but it's significant. It is significant enough when you when you hear just how much it is, it will blow you away. And the way that happens is there's assets and family doesn't really know that those assets were there. And so no one claims it. And so, yeah, you talk about worst case scenarios. I, gosh, I think that's one of the top. It's, it's, you are setting yourself or your family up for a huge amount of work that may not be done successfully if you have lots of different assets at multiple places. What else would you add, Jared? Definitely. Um, I think one of the big, things, maybe not an error, but just something to be mindful of is balancing, uh, just kind of understanding, like avoiding complexity when unnecessary. Right. So like I've seen trusts set up that are very intentional, have some estate planning strategies, but they're required to distribute, uh, net income quarterly instead of annually. And that, you know, if each beneficiary has their own trust and you have four trusts and four different tax IDs, and you're tr- having to calculate what is net income uh, on a quarterly basis, that's an administrative burden to whoever's executing on that. So just really, you know, having an being intentional, but avoiding complexity when when it's necessary. And kind of just in a, what you were alluding to is of having, you know, beneficiaries that understand, not really like understanding where everything is, is one thing and where to go when it happens. But like step two is like not having people surprised by it, right? Like we'll have family meetings with some clients where the next generation is in the room. And I've seen that work really well just to begin to prepare and get people up to speed and kind of an understanding of where thing is. So I I think that that works well. So 
understanding where it is, but also understanding why and how and uh, just beginning to give exposure. Because I think that's another big opportunity, right? Is like a lot of people, the next generation will will leave their current advisor, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it could result in some unwinding of plans that have been executed. So building relationships, not only with the surviving spouse, but with with kids when they get in an a- get to an age where, uh, you know, capacity starts to diminish for uh, the the primary financial uh, organizer of of the family is you know it's never too early to start passing that baton. So avoiding complexity whenever possible and being intentional about you know getting the next generation and their surviving spouse up to speed, I think, can really help you avoid a lot of the a lot of the pain and the heartache that comes from or or not even heartache, just the frustration of things being unorganized uh, and difficult to find. Yeah, well put. So we're going to pivot a little bit. We've talked about what happens when you're gone. But we'll kind of talk about Brownlee Wealth Management because uh, we got we got some questions about that. So I'm excited to talk about that. Um, so this question is, as a fiduciary, are you required to publish how you will take care of the surviving partner? Really good question. Uh, quick answer. No, you are not. So you're not required to pu- publish anything about that. Um, what would you add there, Jared? Yeah. I mean, and here's the thing based on everything we talked about today, right? Like how it happens is going to differ by spouse, right? Um, and so that's why there's no uniform framework that says, hey, here for all surviving spouses, here's how we're going to interact. Because they're, you know, it's like financial planning. Everything's highly personalized. So we don't have a specific thing, but, you know, I love the as a fiduciary, right? So we are obligated to act in your best interest, and so we we can we could promise you that. But how it'll manifest related to your specific situation will be highly personal. It'll depend on who are the other professionals involved and their levels of competence, and how much the surviving spouse does or doesn't know, and what's outlined in the estate documents. Yeah, well put. So yeah, I think the short answer is no. Uh, CFPs or fee only investment advisory firms are not required. Uh, They are not required to publish any formal document of how you're going to take care of their surviving partner, but it is important to have the conversation. So essentially everything we've set up to the podcast up to this point does need to happen, uh, but there is no formal obligation from the SEC or anything like that, or any governing state body of RIAs in that regard. Great. And the last question is, are you required to publish a plan if Brownlee Wealth Management ceased to exist? Financial difficulties, management disagreements, or death of a principal? Um, So Jesse, what would you say there about uh, the plan with Brownlee Wealth Management if we ceased to exist? That is such an incredible question. And it's just a really interesting topic to discuss because it does it does matter in terms of how you pick an investment firm um, on this regard. So there's so many different facets to it and I want to be succinct. How about I start here? That is, so that entire question is the reason why we chose to custody client assets at TD Ameritrade, which is going to be Charles Schwab, and Fidelity. Uh, really hone in on Fidelity. I mean, I, I view them as a very strategic partner. And the reason we put client assets there instead of a much, much smaller custodian, there's several custodians that we could pick. And there's also, that's also a reason why we do not self-custody our client assets at a brokerage institution that we own. We think that is a horrible thing to do. But we do not do that, and we do not put them in a small custodian, and instead we chose Fidelity Investments because they are a nationwide presence. 
They have a fantastic user interface online. And, uh, you know, our locations in, in Houston, DFW, presence in Arkansas as well, everywhere you are. And then so many oil and gas retirees move to random places. You know, we've got clients in New Mexico, Iowa, uh, all over the place, Kansas City. There is a Fidelity Investments nearby. And so that is a massive reason. I think that's the very first thing I'll cover. If assets are custodied at Fidelity, it is a very smooth, seamless process. So if you're working with a smaller investment firm and something happens to you know, the owner or owners of the investment firm, it is a very, very comforting and convenient thing if your accounts are at Fidelity compared to a custodian that you've never heard of. That's right. Yeah. So at the 10,000 foot level, your assets continue to live on. Uh, even if Brownlee Wealth Management ceased to exist tomorrow, uh, since we don't custody the assets, uh, you would have the accounts and you could just continue to self-manage. But then the, the question becomes kind of taking it a step further. Yes, you'll have the accounts. The money will be fine because it's custody this, at this big institution. But Justin, what would happen to uh, Brownlee Wealth Management and all the, all the plans that have been uh, crafted and created? Yes, good question. So it is important for the firm you work with to have a kind of a, a you know a, a disaster plan on that front, and it is helpful in in our situation uh, that we have multiple owners in the firm. Um, I do think that's a huge asset uh, for a number of reasons, but this topic is one of the reasons why it's a, a really big asset. If something happens to me, Jared is an ultimately competent CFP who has all the ability in the world to continue with your financial plan and your investment portfolio and everything that goes along with that. So having some division of ownership, I think is, is a very good asset for our clients long-term. Yeah. And I would say here, age is a benefit. All of the, all of the owners under the, of the firm and employees are, uh, under 40. Uh, and so, you know, there's, we have so we have a da disaster recovery plan that basically what happens in our system how do we continue to operate if there's a an external uh disaster so that there's is, is a business continuity plan basically how do we continue to operate and provide our services even if we lose a you know lose various things that could disrupt that or have to endure a natural natural disaster so we have that but we also have uh, really young owners uh and we're trying to grow our team and expand it. So less of our institutional knowledge exists in Justin and I's head. And we have a team of people executing that can continue to execute on it, regardless of whether or not uh, either of us are involved. But we hope we're both involved for a really long time. Yeah. Isn't that kind of a weird thing? If you're hiring a CFP and you're hiring investment advice, you really want the most competent, experienced, youngest person you can possibly find, um, which is pretty unique. Uh, because vast, vast majority of investors and retirees will stay with one firm for decades. And so, and you know, what is this topic? What's this entire podcast been about? How do you transfer things properly to a surviving spouse or family or children? Um, and so it is a, a massively beneficial thing. If your advisor is not 62 years old, looking through buy sell agreements to leave the business in the next five years. Yeah, but to put a bow on this, you know, the solvency of your accounts is a no it, it, of certain accounts that are custodied are, are no way contingent on the firm that has discretionary authority. Those are two separate things, and and we like it that way. 
Yep. And firmly believe that any advisor you look at, I really think they should be custodying assets. One at a third party, never work with a firm who's custodying their own assets. Massive red flag. That's basically the biggest sign of potential fraud. Um, and then two, I think it is an advantage to be at a custody that has plenty of, of physical locations and a great online presence like Fidelity and Charles Schwab. Yeah. Um, so these are just some of the things you could do. A couple call to, calls to action. Make sure you get your documents in order uh, and then organize it and then have the conversation. Because if you have it all organized, but uh, spouse doesn't know where to get it, it doesn't, doesn't really matter how organized it is. So we hope this is helpful. And thank you. We're grateful for uh, the listener question. Uh, we love getting feedback like this. And even all the subsequent questions made for a really easy conversation. So uh, thoughts or ideas for future episodes, or if you want to be a guest and talk about something, uh, you can find us at podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.